0: Hello and welcome to this special Q&A episode. So I'm answering some questions that have been sent in by you, the beautiful UA community. This is the last of our special Q&A episodes and it's a doozy because I'm sharing some answers to questions from, uh, there's one from Brett who actually asks a really fantastic question about working out costs early in your project. And then Patricia's got some, a question that she wants some information around a Velux skylight. So let's dive in. So join me now. Now, we're going to get to those questions and answers really soon, but first, I want to let you know about something that I think will be super helpful to many of you. This episode is brought to you by my free online workshop, Five Ways to Get It Right in Your Home Design. Look, with all the ideas and the inspiration and whoever you're working with or whether you're designing your home yourself, it can be super hard to design and then commit to a floor plan and have certainty and know confidently that it's going to create the home that you dream of. As an architect with 25 years of industry experience and having designed hundreds and hundreds of homes for homeowners like you, I know that there are key elements to every successful design and that there are specific characteristics that ensure a home will suit you now and always. In this free online workshop, I share tips, ideas, strategies, things to avoid, things to get right to really help you know how to get it right in your home design and this free online workshop it's available to watch now at a time convenient to you so just head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash five ways and that's the number five ways w-a-y-s and that link will be in the resources as well now let's get on with the episode So my first question is from Brett and Brett is in the initial processes of designing a new family home and wants to know how he can get some early costing information in the project to help make the best decision about which options to pursue. So let's hear his question.
1: G'day Amelia, my name's Brett, Uh, I'm from Perth in Western Australia. Um, we've got a young family, uh, two little kids, and we're in the process of planning and designing our future forever home. Being a mechanical engineer, uh, I'm big with planning, designing, and quantifying decisions. Um, while the technical stuff I'm comfortable with, um, what I'm having trouble with is the costing side. Um, there's a lot of information out there on general square meterage cost of a typical home for this and that, and but I'm wondering what resources and, and how would one go about getting a bit more detail in uh, initial first pass costing uh, for the different concepts and building systems and approaches to, uh, to building a home? Not looking for high-level detail that you'd get from a um, quantity surveyor but i'm keen to be able to get a feel for myself as to the differences in costs to use brick over uh, timber framing using uh, slab floor over timber flooring and different ways of doing roof systems and the implication of costs just so i can get a feel for the implications of these different designs and building systems and ideas that i've got um, and. How they're going to change the cost so I can make these very early stage basic conceptual decisions about where to head with the design of the home before I go jumping in with a desired approach that completely doesn't suit budgets. Hope you can help. I love your podcasts. Have listened to every single one. Extremely uh, beneficial. Um, keep up the great work.
0: Well, Brett, this is a fantastic question and I know lots of people in the UA community will be thinking along similar lines and be really excited that you've asked this question because uh, I'll be able to give some information and tools and resources to help you get a handle on how to really nut out, I suppose, the cost implications of what you're doing during your design phase. Now I can tell that you're an engineer. It sounds like you're completely not a problem solver and uh, really wanting to get into the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of it all, which is fantastic. I'm also assuming that you're planning on designing your home yourself and that you're potentially going to take that design, whether you've done it on an app or on, you know, by hand on graph paper or just normal paper, take that straight to a builder or a draft person to be drawn up for approvals and construction. And that's how many homeowners do go about designing their home and finding that increasingly I'm seeing more of it I was never really exposed to it in my career as an architect, I kind of knew people did it but never to the scale that I know that they do now that I have Undercover Architect and Uh, It's a different process when you're doing that rather than working with an architect or a building designer because I suppose the iterative design review process builds in some capacity to work with professionals to figure out the cost of the project as it's developing. Whereas if you're doing this in isolation as a homeowner, designing yourself, exploring options yourself, trying to get ideas yourself, then... You'll be working in isolation of some of those standard kind of practices of assessing cost and the cost implications of different ideas and options. But what I will do is I'll talk you through kind of the combination of how I would approach this if I was working with a client and then what resources there might be available to you to investigate costing and get a better understanding of the costing of some of your decisions. So hopefully it'll be helpful to lots of people who are listening. Now, there's a few things to mention first. So um, obviously finding out the cost of the project is not a one-step process. And I say this a lot uh, in Undercover Architect, you know, sometimes you actually have to run several options simultaneously to be able to make the best choice going forward. It's an iterative process. It requires putting some skin in the game. It requires making an investment of time or money or even both. Uh, and it requires you being willing to to really treat it as an investigative experimentive experimentative, experimentative? <laughs> experimental uh, process to really nail down what's going to be the best option for you I think that far too often homeowners make the mistake of nailing down decisions too early and then kind of barreling forward on one particular choice to get sort of Halfway down the track, and find that there were all these options that they didn't consider, all of these things that they didn't take into account, and then they're in the middle of their process and having invested a lot of time and money to then not know whether they're making the best choice for themselves. And so, instead, if you can treat the beginning of your project like a big fact finding mission, a big investigative mission, to really be able to whittle down the options available to you so that you, if you think about it like a triangle, you know. Uh, I I talk often in my online workshops and things like that, that um, most homeowners will start, they'll treat it like a diamond. So they'll start at the pointy end of the diamond. They'll be moving, uh, having made one decision, uh, made one choice of one option. Moving forward, they'll get to the middle of the diamond, find that there's all these other decisions and options, then have to kind of pivot, you know, reverse, change and then start moving back again to the, you know, to the pointy end of the diamond on the other side. But if you just start in the middle of the diamond, so on the fat end of a triangle, then you can save yourself a whole heap of heartache and a whole heap of wasted time and energy and money uh, by, you know, basically starting at that point anyway and moving towards the point. So I really... um, I think that just having that mindset can be super helpful and I think you're doing that to a certain extent anyway because you're wanting to compare and cost compare options as to what's going to be the most efficient or cost effective way to deliver your project. Now the other thing to keep in mind is that the building systems or the building materiality that you're sort of mentioning in your question, they're only going to be one comparative cost model. You know there's also other Sort of big and even bigger impacts uh, that will, that will. Determine the cost of the project, and that can provide that cost comparative model to be assessing your options on. So, of course, the size of the home is going to make a big difference. You know, and it's tricky because it's not necessarily like you can say, "Well, I'm going to compare complete apples with apples, and I'm going to look at you know a weatherboard home at exactly the same size and design as a brick veneer home, and try and figure out one is which one is more expensive." Because there'll be different structural implications and different uh, choices that you might make, and different design. Approaches that you might take based on the materiality and the aesthetic and those types of things. So, you know, it it is you won't necessarily design the same house in one material that you design in another. And so, you know, the the size of your home can make a big difference. The nature of your site will also have an impact on the cost of the project. You know, its soil conditions, any constraints for access, slope those types of things, you know, that can mean that not all things are equal. And then there's also the business model of the company that you might be dealing with. So that's another big factor in looking at what your cost might be overall, uh, because different building businesses run their projects differently and they have uh, different forms of delivery, which may actually change the kinds of choices that you have available to you in terms of the materials and the building methodologies, but may be lower cost as a result. So it's, it's, Kind of, There's lots of variables, unfortunately, that can make it a bit tricky to just try and have a black and white sort of assessment of is this building system less expensive than this building system, okay? But you know, you want to get started and that's completely understandable. Um, And it can be really frustrating for first timers, for the uninitiated, even for people who've been doing this for a while to just not be able to find out, you know, this is what I want to design. How much is it going to cost me? And what's going to be the cheapest way to do it? Like, If somebody could answer that question, they would be making millions and millions of dollars. (laughs) I think this is probably the most common question that people do ask. But um, if you do want to get started, you know, the first thing to understand is there are resources available online, either as free or paid resources, for residential cost guides. Now, I find that they're often a little undercooked, especially for custom one off homes. So, I'm going to pop a selection of these links into the resources so that you can check them out. And uh, so, if you head to the show notes for this episode, or if you there'll be a link to the blog, and you'll be able to see the links for these websites um, at the bottom of it. Now two main construction cost guides that are used in the industry are Rawlinson's and Cordell's. Now both of those are paid models um, and they get updated each year and they're based on sort of current Uh, building data and there's lots of process that goes into those being populated with information. The Rawlinson's guide is actually quite low cost to purchase as a PDF Um, and these are the types of guides that are used by quantity surveyors and building estimators to I suppose check what current costs are if those you know they sort of you'll find that quantity surveyors and building estimators based on how they run their businesses they'll either just be using Rawlinson's or Cordell's Or they'll also be cross-referencing against projects that they see come across their books and checking how contract sums and delivery prices ended up relating or um, differing from the estimates that they did in the first place so that they can do some cost correction in how they then format their costs going forward. So, um, but if you, you know, Rawlinson's is a very detailed one and it's, the thing is that it's uh, it's I suppose it's a start you know the the thing to note though is that experienced builders who are used to pricing projects they don't use cost guides like this they use their previous experience they look at previous projects what things cost and um, then they might uh, increase the cost based on if the suppliers increase the you know the the price of the product or their labor costs have increased so it's this kind of uh, ever growing, ever evolving model of how costs get assessed. But if you're wanting to start, that Rollinsons is probably the most economical, most up to date kind of current thing. It. It is also going to be based on large volume builders as much as sort of smaller projects. So, of course, it's, it's you know, potentially easier to access the data of large volume builders. And, um, and so it's a case of sort of really understanding, interrogating where is that data coming from and how does that data compare to how you're planning on delivering your project. If you're going to do a one-off bespoke home on a, you know, suburban block that might have a few challenges or constraints, that's very different to building a, you know, a project home that's on a, a blank site that's being developed and subdivided and, and um, all done sort of in in mass. So it's really sort of factoring that in. But often you can do that with percentages, build yourself in some buffers and contingencies and work from it in that way. Now, the second thing to understand is that if you can accept that it actually may be best just to run some options simultaneously to, our, to each other. And whenever I'm working with clients, what I will usually do is I will prepare several design options that will Spend the budget differently. So, for example, they may vary in size, they may vary in arrangement. So, for example, it might vary the amount of excavation that's required on the site, or perhaps the materiality of the home. Um, the if it's a renovation the options will vary perhaps how much of the existing home is demolished to add an extension or how much of the existing home is repurposed Um, it may vary the you know the the I suppose, the extent of where it sits on the site. Um, Sometimes building to the boundary, you know, can have different cost implications and making sure that you've got easy access within the site the whole way around. So there can be lots of different ways that you can assess and present and think about different options. And sometimes the best thing to do is actually to run options simultaneously with each other because what I see happen for homeowners is that they often don't really decide whether something is too expensive until they can actually see what they're getting for the price that it's costing. So price plus result is how I see people really determine what they want their budget and their outcome to be. So exploring options can really help you weigh up your priorities overall. And you know, even with a fixed budget, if you've got a total maximum that you want to spend, you you can still see whether you want to spend all of it based on the option that you're getting, or you're happy to spend less and have some buffer or spend some money on decent landscaping or something like that, because the choice that you get that is the lower cost isn't necessarily, you know, considerably, I suppose, worse or um, not delivering on your brief. So it is this thing of really. It's not until you've got the option and the price attached to it that you can really weigh up your priorities from what I've seen from homeowner's experience. Now, the third thing I would recommend is that you get a builder involved early. Now, This is the thing, if you're planning on designing this home yourself, this can be more difficult um, than if you're working with an architect or a building designer. But at the very least, I would suggest that you start connecting with builders who build the types of homes that you envisage wanting your project to be. So if you can start talking with them, just open the lines of dialogue, um, have a chat to them about, you know, what they generally build from, what what their kind of construction methods are. Uh, what their square meter rates might be, you know, have a look at their previous projects and ask them what those previous projects cost. If you can get a look inside them, that's really worthwhile. See if the site conditions are similar to your project. See if the size is, is similar, the standard of finish. Now, you may need to pay them for this input, but this is actually a fantastic way to build a relationship with a builder. Um, if you're designing your project though yourself and you're going to work with a builder in this way, I would just um, have one caveat that you know that you're always going to own your design. So, Sometimes what I see happen for homeowners who are designing their homes themselves is that they'll decide to start working with a builder early on. The builder will then offer some preliminary agreement where they can work with their draftspeople people to sort of, you know, explore options and get pricing along the way and make sure that they're, you know, almost like a one-stop shop, make sure that they're getting the project that they want for the price they want to spend on it. But then somewhere buried in the preliminary agreement will be something about the fact that the builder owns the drawings and that you need to pay a penalty fee if you're going to walk away with the design. So, you know, if you can organise it that uh, this is something that you can do and work alongside with a builder in a collaborative way, you may even find just asking local builders lots of questions um, to about projects that you've seen finished can help you get a handle on What you're seeing in terms of the cost implications you know paying attention to things like not only the materiality and i'll talk through this in more detail but things like you know the open plan nature of the spaces how much steel's being used in the structural design you know is there stepping in the floor plan in terms of both uh stepping in and out in a in a two-dimensional sense and stepping up and down in terms of a split level or you know dealing with site um So, you know, a lot of people just sort of focus on the finishes and the fixtures, but they make up a fairly small percentage of the overall cost of the build and there's, you know, other things that, as I said, I'll talk in more detail that will drive the cost of your project far more considerably. So if you can, you know... Uh, really treat this as a bit of kind of research and investigation and sort of talking with builders about, you know, what was the expensive part of this project? If you did this project again, how would you build it more efficiently to save money, you know? And you'll find that it'll be a really great way of seeing what builders are willing to be kind of communicative with you, what builders are willing to, you know, can be completely transparent and say, look, I am working on my project. We are building this house soon. I want to build a decent relationship with a builder that I respect, that I can collaborate with. And I want to be finding that builder early because I don't want to get myself into a position where I'm, you know, desperately looking for a builder and farming out quotes to 20 different people. I want to work collaboratively with somebody and really sort of suss out. Uh, the builders in your area from that place, and you'll you know you'll soon see the ones that are you know helpful and collaborative and communicative in the way that they work with you, and respectful, and that you can actually envisage enjoying seeing your home get built by them because they're good quality, you know, great communicators. So definitely getting a builder involved early can be a big positive and a big asset in your resolution of your cost and your building delivery methods and all of those types of things associated with your project. Now, the fourth point is to think about uh, going to some display villages. Now, this can be helpful to a point. Um, The larger ones, you know, that are sort of on big subdivisions where you get to say, you know, there's sort of 25 or 30 houses in one display village – It'll give you the ability to compare house types, to compare construction types with each other and you can start to see the impact of material types, of ceiling heights, of glazing amounts, uh, of the detail aspects but particularly the builder's business size and how that can impact the cost of their homes. Now obviously the larger the builder, you know, the more homes that they are doing every year and they not always, but they potentially have the opportunity then to lower their profit margin, which means that they then are, they they're potentially going to be lower cost to build with. I mean, this is how a lot of the project home industry works. The challenge is though that you have to fit within their model um, in order to deliver at that economic level. so, You know, you may not be able to choose all the types of finishes that you want. You may not be able to have the detailing that you want. You may not be able to have the floor plan design that you want. You may not be able to have, you know, various bits and pieces. So, And then the more custom, the more bespoke, the more one-off, the profit margin is going to increase because they're going to build less homes per year. They're going to have – they're not going to be able to amortize – the cost of running a business across as many homes. Um, so, you know, they still need to run a team, they need to run an office, they've got insurance to pay, vehicles to run, all those kinds of things. And that, that, those base business costs will be amortized across less homes. So the profit margin that you see is not necessarily, um, it's not, it's rarely pure profit that's going back into the builder's um, pocket. It'll be, uh, it'll be um, overhead costs as well, but uh, it's based on the fact that you ultimately, then, with those smaller businesses, may get more choice, more flexibility, more options, uh, able to work with, you know, sup- with specific suppliers and products that you you want to use, um, rather than going through the system that the builder may be uh, requiring you to. So, but when you do wander around display villages, what I find is that you can at least get an understanding and even some ideas of. Uh, the different types of materials that are used, the way that things are working, having a look at even things like if you're building a brick veneer home, you'll see different builders will make decisions about what they might do on upper floors where it's more costly to suspend brickwork in the air and so they'll have rendered blueboard. Um, they'll have rendered blueboard over the top of the windows for example and uh, so and that rendered blueboard may be packed out to be flush with the brickwork or it may be set back so it's not the same depth as the brickwork. You know all of those things are Little decisions that make a big difference on cost overall, particularly when you're rolling out several homes per you know a lot of homes per year. So this is the thing: is that there'll be just des- there'll be decisions that you can make at a at a sort of I suppose a holistic level, but there'll be lots of these dis- small small detail impacts that you may not be able to get a handle on um, unless you spend a lot of time, obviously digging and searching and paying attention, and so. Um, that can be the thing that can be challenging, and that can be the thing that it's useful to bring a building designer or an architect on board to really, I suppose, investigate those options. And that might be what you know some homeowners decide to do, is that they sort of get this handle on the design options that they like, and you know, use the process of kind of designing their own home to nut out what they want and really get those ideas together. But then take it to the building designer to um, to be able to develop those ideas into constructible homes exploring the cost impacts of the decisions that they've been making okay now further to that so my fifth point is that you're you're going to have to accept that there may be things that you won't be able to cover so this develops on my last point you know structure as I said has a huge impact on the design of a home so I know personally that as I'm designing I am thinking about, you know, the way that I size rooms so that I can limit the amount of steel that needs to be used in the home or eliminate it completely. I'm looking at how I position openings, how I size those openings, how I place floors or roofs over spaces. Um, you know I look I look at how I'm going to rationalize the services the plumbing and the electrical how I'm going to position things in the home so that I can make the plumbing as efficient as possible um, you know all of that general arrangement of the floor plan and the sizing and the shape of things all has such a dramatic impact on the costs of things that we just don't see that are in the walls um, that are you know, almost irrelevant to the materials choices that you might be using uh, that will then have a big impact. And so, you know, the building materials and the systems, they're just one component that you're going to be able to look for, you know, and look at a schedule and get a linear meter each rate that you can then apply to, you know, your floor plan. But there's going to be lots of kind of trickier things, Uh, for you to consider um, and you know people who are in the industry you know perhaps have an engineering background may be more able to access an understanding and a level of research about this but it's just a case of accepting that it may not be something that you can get a handle on and almost running a list of kind of questions whilst you're doing this you know some of the things that can be really helpful as you're designing these options and weighing up these different ideas is just to keep a list of, if I did this, would that mean I'd save cash? If I did this, would it mean that it would be, you know, simpler to build? This is the thing like, it's not just always about it costing less. If you can make it faster to build, if it means that scaffolding needs to be on site for less time, if it means that, um, that, you know, the builder can save time on the overall construction, or can streamline things more efficiently. Then that will save you money as much as lowering the cost of the specific item overall. So there's a you know a lot of things to take into account. Um, that that perhaps if you even just keep a running tally of the thoughts and the questions and the the things you've been weighing up, then that's your conversation topics with the builder. That's your conversation topics with the um, draftsperson to be able to then assess the options more effectively. Now, my last piece of, uh, my last recommendation is that in all of your designing, keep things small. Okay. So how small? Well, I really suggest that you test All of the ideas that you're drawing either in an app or on paper, test them out at one-to-one. So get a tape measure out, you know, get a feel for the current spaces in the home that you're living in now, in homes that you visit. Um, Walking through display villages with a tape measure can be a really, really handy way of just understanding how big a space is and does it feel too big and, you know, measuring it out and going, well, okay, so this size feels too big to me. So therefore I'll mark that down on a piece of paper. You know, look at the furniture that you've got that you wanted to house in this future home and get some understanding of the dimensionality of it and how that might fit into a floor plan. And of course I have home design masterclass that has loads of specific how-to advice for designing a new home or a renovation and uh, really giving you some recommendations for layout and dimensions and all of those types of things. So that's I've taken you through a bit of a process. By no means is it exhaustive. (laughs) There's still lots of other things that you can think about, but hopefully that's given you a preliminary understanding of at this point how to assess the comparative costs of the options you might be exploring. You know, as I said, if you can just accept that you may need to run a few options side by side and keep that kind of running tally of questions or suggestions or ideas And not be in a hurry to nail down one option um, until you've got some expert involvement from a builder or a quantity surveyor or a building estimator or somebody who's got a handle on cost. Um, And I feel that the builder is the better route uh, in terms of finding somebody that you can collaborate with. Um, But uh, you may want to find a building estimator that can help you kind of work alongside you in this regard. But yeah, it is that thing of trying to not necessarily nail down the one option quickly because the the building systems and the materiality are going to be just one component of lots of alternatives that will impact the price of the project. And so it, keeping your options open that still deliver on your brief, but enable you to get some more accurate costing information from somebody who understands cost at a more uh, realistic level will then help you be more confident in making the choice to move forward. So hopefully you found that helpful and thanks so much for your question, Brett. Next, let's hear from Patricia, who's trying to do a retrofit on an existing home with a VLUX skylight to see if she can get more light into the home.
1: Hello, Amelia. My name is Patricia from Victoria. We are planning to build, but in the meantime, I would like more light. There is a velix in the living room ceiling, 50 centimeter by a metre 30. It's not flushed with the ceiling. Is it possible to enlarge the casement to provide a wider angle of light? And how much more light could we get? Thank you.
0: So Patricia, thank you for your question. So from what I understand, you're obviously going to do a project down the track but you want to get more light in the meantime and you've got a Velux which is a skylight or a sky window in your living room ceiling um, that sits up. It's not flush in the ceiling. It's obviously up in the roof line and you're wanting to know if it's possible to enlarge to get more light and how much light you'd actually get. So um, Velux skylights are fantastic. They're, you know, one of my favourite things to use particularly when you've got challenging orientation or you've got, you know, a long skinny home that might only, you know, have a narrow frontage on either end to bring light in. They're, they're other, you know, they're known as sky windows as well as skylights. So they're a framed window that goes into the roofline and you can have, um, you can have them on a, they, they have to be on a minimum pitch. So even if you have a flat roof, they get supplied that you can then build them up to the angle that you need to. They come with all the, you know, you can get all the flashing that componentry that goes around them, or you can put them into the same alignment as your sloping roof. So there's lots of flexibility with them. They're really great because, um, and like, to be frank with you, I've never used anything else, but Velux. So I'm not sure of other brands that do similar products. Um, Velux to me are probably the most established brand globally and um, do a really great quality product. So they're really good because they bring natural light in. So as I said, if you've got a challenging design, if you've got, you know, something that's facing south uh, at the rear and you want to bring northern light in, the skylight's a really great way to do it. If you've got a predominantly west facing and you want to bring some eastern light in, that's a really great way to do it. Um, And... The, you know, they you can obviously position them. They don't necessarily need to be, uh, let me start again, because you can build them the up and you can build them up at the slope that you want. Your roof may be falling in one direction, but you can build up a pop up and put the skylight in facing in an opposite direction to almost correct the orientation and get the light that you want. Now, they let you see sky, which is such a beautiful thing. It's always a really dynamic, surprising thing to add in a home. Really opens up that sense of spaciousness to be able to see the sky, see what the weather's doing. It gives you the chance to have dynamic light moving across your home based on how the sun is moving. And um, they just do wonders in terms of lifting the feeling of a a space as a result. Uh, They can also provide you with ventilation because they can be operable so they can be motorized or they can be manually operated with a a rod that you push them open with and close them with and um, that can be great uh, to be able to get that hot air that's rising out of your house, um, be able to pull breezes through your home, you know, that can really do wonders for the natural ventilation in your home. Um, VLUX can supply them with double glazing, they can supply them with tinted glass, you can get blinds in them. There's all sorts of options so that you've got a lot of flexibility with creating a skylight that's specific to your location, orientation and climate. I get lots of people who I suggest VLUX is too, then their builder will say to them, oh you know, sh- <laughs> the undercover architect doesn't understand, um, we get really hot summers down here or we get really cold winters and you're just going to either gain lots of heat or you're going to lose lots of hate. It's not something that we can, you know, it's not something that's going to work for our climate. Um, And you will find that if you jump on the phone to VLUX, they will have a local representative in your area. And that's pretty much globally. And they can talk to you about how the Velux get specified for your area, like what the best recommendations are in terms of glass type or, um, t- or tint or blinds or double glazing or those types of things so that you can really make sure that you're going to get one that's not going to detrimentally affect the temperature of your home and is going to work really well. So don't limit yourself just by thinking that it's not going to work for your area. There is enough flexibility in the way you can specify them to be able to get it to work. The other thing is that they come in standard sizes. So they work with the roof structure, which is really awesome. So most trusses and rafters will be spaced 450 millimeters apart or 600 millimeters apart. And you'll look at the sizes of the Veluxes and see that there's something that can slide between trusses. They can sit between trusses or sit between rafters. So it means that you don't always have to do a massive amount of reconfiguration to your roofing structure in order to get these things to work and to accommodate them. So um, that's one of the really huge benefits of incorporating the Velux Skylights because they can work really well. Now in terms of your question Patricia and how it might work in terms of rectifying or changing your setup. So um, it's obviously going to depend on your specific situation and how the Velux has been installed. Now the the thing is that uh, Veluxes will go into the roofline, as I said, and then based on whether you've got a trust. Uh, structure to your roof or a rafted structure to your roof, that will impact what your ceiling is doing. So if you've got a truss structure to your roof, so truss is obviously a triangular, triangulated bit of structure that supports the roof and it will mean that the ceiling is flat and the V-Lux will be up in the alignment of the roof itself. So you may then just have a shaft shaped out of plasterboard and timber framing that sits between the v Skylight and the flat ceiling below. Now that shaft... Uh, can be shaped pretty much exactly the same size as the Velux and just brought down vertically or you can enlarge the shaft so that it's larger at the ceiling than it is at the skylight so you can rake out the sides of the shaft so they're on a slope and they open up the shaft to the line of the ceiling to be able to then increase the amount of light that comes down into the home Um, doing that is going to mean that you're going to have to obviously uh, potentially frame up the ceiling slightly differently and it's something that needs to happen at the design stage so that you really understand what it's going to mean potentially for your lighting layout for the way that services might run through the ceiling and for the structure itself and how the rest of the roof needs to be supported but it is possible and it's something really effective to do and if you have a look at the VLUX website you'll actually see a range of different projects where they've done different approaches to whether they've got a flat ceiling in the space and then and they've done, a sh- they might have three VLUX skylights grouped together and the shaft is for the extent of those three skylights rather than bringing down three individual shafts. Um, so they've, you know, deleted the trusses basically for that extent of those three skylights so that they've got um, a really big open area. Or it might be that they've got smaller um, shafts and that are still bringing down really directional natural light from the VLUX skylight. Now, if you've got a raked ceiling, um, then obviously that's going to change the way that you might be arranging the ceiling around the skylight itself. Um, But there's lots of different options. And the best thing is to look at the project examples on the VLUX website to get some inspiration for all of that. So – with the shaft in your ceiling, Patricia, in yours particularly, the big thing to understand is obviously what is inside the ceiling structure itself as to how feasible it is for you to change the shape of the shaft. If um, you've know, if you got a lot of structural support that's actually required to hold up your roof um, and that is what's shaping the shaft as it currently stands, then to modify that may require some s- structural reconfiguration and that then can be It's doable, but it's obviously a more involved process. It's really a case of, uh, you know, getting a builder to come around and have a look into your ceiling space and give some advice about how that shaft has been shaped up, what's around it, and what flexibility you have to enlarge it. Now, in terms of whether it's going to improve the natural light, that's going to depend on what direction the skylight is facing. So with Velux skylights, I'm a big fan of having them facing, they're great for facing south because they give really good lovely ambient light to a space and uh, as long as you're managing the heat loss out of them if you're particularly in a cold area um, by perhaps the type of glazing you use using double glazing those types of things they can they can just give a really lovely ambient quality of light to a space another direction I love having them face is north as long as they're um, appropriately tinted or shaded so that they um, don't you basically don't cook from the high level sun above and east is another lovely way. I try and avoid having them facing west, just because it's tricky to, you know, it's it's generally, particularly in summer, to have them uh, getting giving access to a lot of hot sun. In this, as the sun is setting, can be really challenging. That's not to say it's not doable, and it's not to say that you couldn't specify a particular type of glazing or shade or blind system so that it protects it, um, so that you can get that in place. Uh, to shade the window at those times of the day, and then not um, be letting in, and then be letting in light at other times of the day. It's really making sure that you design it specific for the orientation. But it's a case of understanding which direction it faces, and then seeing if if that is an orientation that you can, you know, if you feel like it is actually, it could be accessing more light, then opening up the shaft, widening the shaft so that you have a bigger area on the ceiling, a bigger hole on the ceiling than the size of the skylight itself would definitely enhance the nature of natural light inside. You want to check out if this is something that you're retrofitting, you want to check out where your light fittings are in the current space, um, what that might do in terms of having to relocate light fittings. And also just looking at any detailing that you might have, to, ha- you might already have in your ceiling. If you're going to be cutting bigger holes in the ceiling, uh, you're going to have to make good any weird, you know, I suppose, special detailing or ceiling roses or cornicing or anything like that. Um, But it's definitely always worthwhile investigating, getting somebody to come and give you an idea of what the cost might be. I find, and I've said this before, as soon as you get a cost against something, you very quickly determine whether it's a big priority to you or not. (laughs) So that can be um, a big thing. Sometimes too, I find that with some of these skylights, Um, you know, you mentioned Patricia that yours is a Velux, but I have seen homeowners who might like have an old, um, sort of domed plexi, um, type of skylight, or they might have a very old skylight that's gone into their home a long time ago and the, um, material in it is slightly crazed or it's slightly dirty, or it's, um, it's just degraded over time. It can be, it can do wonders, absolute wonders. And I've seen this myself, when you look at potentially replacing whatever the material is in the skylight with a new version so you get new plexi or you get new glass put in or you just give it a really really good clean Um, and because of course over time they can collect leaf litter and dirt and dust and if you're not regularly maintaining them then that can build up in residue on the surface itself and really diminish the amount of natural light that gets through them. So giving them a good maintenance can be a really worthwhile step in totally improving the quality of natural light and how much they're lighting your interiors. So I'll pop a link to Velux in the resources. Velux, if you're listening, I would love to um, <laughs> love to work with you because you're the only skylight that I recommend. <laughs> it's a shameless plug. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and in the meantime, yeah, check them out. They're really, really good for um, just for, for dealing with those really less than desirable, you know, orientations or if you've got a particular orientation that's challenging and you really need to get that northerly light in or that northeasterly light in, a skylight can be the solution. And, I, yeah, the Velux ones are just, they're really well made. You can get them in timber-framed, aluminium-framed, a combination of both, um, lots of options. All right, so check it out. I hope that's been helpful. Well, I do hope that you found those answers helpful and that you found this little group of uh, podcast episodes helpful. If this is the first one that you're listening to, this is actually the last in a series of five where I've answered questions from the UA community about their projects. There's lots of different dilemmas, lots of different situations. Uh, There's something for everyone. So make sure you check out the previous episodes and uh, really dive into those answers and see how they apply to your own project. Now for all the links and the resources that I've mentioned in these podcasts, you can head to each of the show notes or you can head to the undercover architect website for every podcast I do. There's always a post a blog post on undercover architects website and the links and the resources that I mention in each specific podcast are at the bottom of each of those posts. So you can find all of that information just on undercoverarchitect.com head to podcast in the navigation menu up the top. And I've got an index of every single podcast episode I've done. Uh, I think we're possibly up over 150 now, maybe more. So um, um, they're all listed there and you can use it as a quick index to go through now be sure to check out my free online workshop five ways to get it right in your home design it's got some really useful information that I've been getting great feedback on on how helpful people have been finding uh, for really navigating their new home design or their renovation design it only goes for an hour and honestly it's investment in yourself it's investment in your future home it's investment in your project and it has the potential to save you boatloads of cash heaps of time plus avoiding the you know the concern and the regret around making mistakes and choices in your future home that you'll end up you know not enjoying living with day to day so uh it's it's really powerful as uh some helpful information about what works, what doesn't, some tips and strategies, some ideas about things that I know from my 25 years experience really work in family homes and really help families live great lifestyles and in functional, convenient, fun, beautiful family homes that help them feel great. Now, in the next episode, I'm actually gonna be diving more into the topic of home design. Uh, You know, for me, one of the big hurdles for homeowners in moving forward in their project is having certainty around the design itself, around the lines that are being drawn for their floor plan design, whether they're working with somebody or they're doing it themselves. There's this real hesitancy to commit uh, because there's an, a lack of certainty about whether what you're seeing on your floor plan will actually create the kind of lifestyle that you want to lead in your home. And it's a big investment. Whatever it is, it'll be a big investment to you and it's a big gamble. And so you want to know with some confidence, some certainty that you're going to get the result that you want. So um, I've got some great information to share in our next episode and uh, make sure you tune in for that. Now, I want to say thank you so much to all of you who uploaded a question. I know it can take some courage to, you know, record your voice and know that your voice is potentially going to be heard by lots of people. But I hope that you found, you know, those of you who actually uploaded questions and got answers, I hope that you found the answers really helpful. I hope that others, you know, I do really want to thank you for your courage, because I know that by you asking the question and me being able to give the answer, it has helped loads of other homeowners. And so I hope that those of you who are benefiting from the answers, really enjoy that. For those of you who didn't get your questions answered, you know, I'm sure that we'll be doing this again. I actually had a lot of fun hearing from you, hearing your specific challenges, your situations. You know, I love hearing from the UA community and what you're personally dealing with and um, trying to solve to create this beautiful home that you're dreaming of so thanks so much and uh, yeah I've really enjoyed it I'm thinking that this will become something that we do a bit with a bit more regularity it's something I do with my members of my online courses all the time we have monthly Q&A's and I'm getting to know them and their projects and their challenges and helping them out at an individual level um, but to be able to do it on the podcast has actually been really enjoyable so I hope that it's been helpful for you. And uh, yeah, as always, thank you so much for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.